right, everyone, welcome back to the Far Out Wisdom Podcast. And today is going to be a very serious conversation, but me and McCall, we're going to have an awesome time and we're going to teach you guys a little bit history. Well, not me, him. Uh, it's going to kind of educate you guys about the the war in Vietnam. And um, as you guys know, uh, I invite him onto this podcast because I want more information about what happened uh, due to the fact that... Um, my family personally was affected by this war. So McCall, he sent me a little bit of information about himself. He has a master's in international relations with a focus on U.S. foreign policies and economics. So that's really awesome. McCall, welcome to my podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I'm excited. Uh, so I can't really, I, I can't wait because of, this is the, I believe the second conversation that we had and the first one, we were on the phone for about like an hour and a half yeah, and I a did <laughs> not record it and I regret every, I was like, I was kicking myself and I was like, I should have had him on, but I didn't. So darn it. We so, live, we learn. <laughs> so I, I want to get like a little, um bullet point for you guys for my audience to kind of get you guys going a little bit because we're going to talk about the Vietnam War and what led to it. So um, the first Indochina War, um, it was a anti-French resistant war in Vietnam uh, between December 19, 19, 1946 to uh, 7-20, 1954. Uh, Bao Dai Vietnamese nationalist was backed by the France, by the French, um, and they were fighting the Viet Minh. So that's the Hun Chin Min, uh, the opponents um, there. And there was, you know, the, the Khmer Viet Minh. Um, there were about like 3,000 to 5,000 Cambodian communists that fled away. And if you guys don't know who Hun Sen is, he is the president of Cambodia. And he was one of the uh, comrades that were on the other side of Vietnam. And um, the war lasted for about seven years, seven months, a week and six days. Uh, the Viet Minh won the war. Uh, we have to remember that the weapons were supplied by the United States of America, China, and the Soviet Union. So this is during the communists, during that era, right? Right, McCall? During mm -hmm. the communists, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And so then the French Indochina was made between 1858, 1887. So this has been going on for quite some time. So a lot of misconception that a lot of, that I have seen a uh, majority of the time that I, I come across people who are uh, Marxists, they always say that the... Um, the United States was the cause of Pol Pot committing genocide, which is wrong. Um, it was before that. It was a lot of deeper um, hatred towards the Vietnamese, the Laos, and the Thais uh, for centuries before that. So that's one of the the main key components that I want to address. And McCall is going to uh, talk about that as well. So, and then the Japanese did took over in the forties and then there's the Franco Thai war. That's the French. And so, um, so Ho Chi Minh, uh, he saw communism as a way to freedom. Uh, and then the reason why he asked for the Japanese for help is because the Japanese did not um, have, I guess what they call European imperialism. And then, um, the 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 thing that's funny to me is to impure Japan to say, well, <laughs> yeah, they they weren't uh, part of the West, so I guess they're okay. 
Yeah, exactly. So the, the the funny thing is, is that Hon Chin Min, if you guys don't know this, he declared independence from France and even borrowed the piece of the Declaration of Independence. Um, he said that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with the in it certain inalienable rights among these Animal life, liberty, and, and pursuit of happiness. of happiness. And then so he took that and um, the reason why I gave a little bit of background information to the first Indochina war that led to the second Indochina war is pretty much what McCall is going to pick up. Um, it's to um, we agree that the Vietnam, Vietnam War was an absolute mess. It was a complete mess. And um, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, I was personally affected by the war. My father was a former Rouge, a Khmer Rouge, and that's Khmer Kham. And then Pol Pot took advantage of the poor people and led to a very, uh, very, very nasty things in the name of Angkor. So Angkor is pretty much what they use to justify the torture, the starvation, and the execution of their own Cambodian people. And then, so the funny thing is, is that sometimes between 1949 and 51, Pol Pot and Ling Seri joined the French Communist Party. Um, and then Hun Yun, in his 1955 thesis, The Cambodian Peasants and Their Prospect for Modernization, it challenged the conventional view that um, urbanization and industrialization are necessary precursor of development. So they wanted to uh, take uh, Mao Zedong and Stalin's idea, and I mean, yeah, Mao Zedong and Stalin, and made it into more of a Agrarian Marxist utopia, um, and it led to um, approximately 1.5 million deaths of their own people. So we can go to brother number one was Pol Pot, brother number two was Nunchia, brother number three was Lang Seri, brother number four was Kion Simpan, and brother number five was Tamak. Tamak is now sitting in, in trial, um, and uh, that whole entire trial was pretty not... Not for me personally, but to see my parents watch the entire trial and Tamak getting away with it. Well, he didn't get necessarily get away with it, but he uh, was Christian, so he is forgiven for his sin. That's pretty much what he's uh, trying to say. So, of course, there's brother number eight. That's Kipak, Sun Sin, and then Yun Hayat. So it's it's a lot of um, it's it's so much information, but that's pretty much what's going on. And McCall. What do you, you were alive during that period of time, correct? During the, well, you, you I'm not I just said you're old. My bad. <laughs> well, I can probably forgive you somehow. I was, um, I was born in November of 1964. Okay. So it was already in progress. And it, of course, was in progress, at least the Vietnam component, uh, through basically uh, the summer of 75. So, uh, yeah, I was, in fact, alive during that time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> Just like that, never. So this is a period of time, and this is um, if you guys audience, if you guys don't know, this is leading up to today's politics. Uh, this is what you see in intersectionality, uh, in postmodernism, and the Vietnam War, and it, it, I, I don't know, McCall, you can um, interject if you want to. I think it kind of fuel that postmodernism and intersectionality what we see today. What do you think? Well, I think I think the the postmodernist conversation is actually quite important. But um, one thing that is very interesting about Vietnam and all of the Indochina conflict is that odds are extremely low that you'll hear it mentioned in any of today's um, 
international relations uh, training programs at colleges and universities, and you're certainly not going to hear it in any um, in any rhetoric that uh, suggests or encourages uh, socialism or any type of utopian society. Um, my belief is why that's not mentioned um, is because it's still too recent. Uh, too many people within their living memory know of the atrocities of communism and certainly of socialism and totalitarianism. Uh, there are too many people alive who were there, and, and you and your family happen to be among them. So it is difficult to tell bold lies when there are still too many people who actually lived it and still have very strong visceral reactions to um, stories that are, that are basically untrue. And what's interesting about uh, the Vietnam uh, dynamic is that virtually all of it is lies. I mean, they're now on their third or fourth, and, and by them, I mean historians, are now on their third or fourth revision once they've finally gotten wind of what actually happened. I mean, taking a look at August 4th, 1964, for example, and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, for a very long time, it was believed that, or it was told to everyone who would listen, that the United, a United States naval ship was attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin, and that we had to retaliate against that attack, and that's what led to the shooting war of the U.S. and, uh, and Vietnam. Only to find out decades later that that was not true. That incident was completely fabricated. And now it's been widely and publicly uh, distributed and gradually getting more widely and publicly known that that incident never in fact happened. And the official account now is that that event never actually happened. And the uh, NSA um, has uh, captured, decoded, and... Um, uh, analyzed the actual transmissions, and there was uh, an attack planned a few days prior to that. Um, but the actual day of claimed attack never actually happened, and nor did the uh, the attack that had been previously planned. So, so the list goes on with the numbers of things that have since been proven to be um, completely, completely untrue. And that's, you know, and, and, and being the, and, and being the impetus for war, you know, um, is, is, is among the first and foremost. And, and it, it does, as you learn about this, it does, however, to your point, inform us of what's going on today, even if Vietnam is no longer taught or, or not taught in schools anymore. Um, once you do understand what's going on there or what went on there. Um, it does give you a, a much clearer view of what's going on today and why. So, for example, um, if we take a look, you know, at the U.S. entering into the Iraq War, was the premise of the uh, tanker trucks full of uh, uh, poisonous gas, uh, was that real? Was that presentation just a pretext to go to war? Um, so... Um, it, it, it goes on. The propaganda goes on. The stories go on. Uh, the nature of uh, the political battles uh, that go on uh, continue. And I think that Vietnam and the Indochina Peninsula is an excellent modern um, example of how propaganda, socialism, communism, and warfare are actually carried out. And I think it's a very important lesson for, for people to study. So I, I really thank you and, 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 and applaud you for taking on this, this subject because it's huge. It's a long-term form of study because there's so many factors involved. 
and uh, and once you understand who the players were as well, and and wh- and where they ended up historically and what their views were, um, you know, you begin to get a very a very different feel for what has been not so much romanticized, but it's been both romanticized and catastrophized. Um, but uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll take your your accounts because the um, I do want to speak about postmodernism and why the '60s looked the way they looked relating to Vietnam. And it's like really like um, the thing. But before we start with postmodernism, what's your your theory? Why did they chose that particular area of Southeast Asia? Why who? The the, the United States, the um, China, Russia. They fought pretty much during that period of time for about I mean, for quite some time. Um, it's because of the the residue of World War Two that led to. You know, warfare in that particular area. Or, oh well, yeah. We need not look really much further than um, Robert McNamara and his memoir on the Vietnam War to get at least a partial, if not you know, mostly now accurate view of, of why the U.S. was involved in Vietnam. And basically, um, Robert McNamara, McNamara describes that what the U.S. was concerned about. I mean, this was you know, the, basically the first third of the cold war that we are, you know, world war two is done. World war two is basically in many cases buried and continuing to be buried. Um, I personally don't necessarily think that this is a reflection or a, a follow on from world war two. What I do believe, however, is that this was an active and concerning part of what was going on during the cold war, because fundamentally it was the U S versus the Soviet union. And both sides were trying to gain as much influence in the world as they could, wherever they could find it. And, um, you know, that this is the reason behind the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, communism was literally at the doorstep of the United States. Obviously, that wasn't something that was a preferred situation. Um, The Soviets did get caught sneaking ballistic missiles onto the island of Cuba. They actually had photographs. They actually saw the boats, and that's what caused the blockade, for example. And so the fear was having communism in the Western Hemisphere. So if we head back to Southeast Asia, we spin that globe around. It was exactly the same thing. And the operating theory for foreign, po- for foreign policy advisors at the time was uh, the, the domino theory. And the domino theory for Southeast Asia was that if one country falls to um, communism, uh, the neighbors will most likely follow. And that was the fear and that was the concern. And that was the policy that the U.S. took on as they went in there. Now, Robert McNamara is very clear about this, you know, many years later, that the entire premise was completely wrong. What was really going on in Vietnam was in large part to what you just described a few minutes ago. There has been a conflict in the region for thousands of years. There's been a rivalry and competition in the region for thousands of years. And in recent times, or more recent times, Vietnam had suffered severely from this perpetual colonialization. They were perpetually under the boot of somebody else. And during the time that, uh, you know, just before the United States showed up, uh, it, it had been France for, for a very long time. And you mentioned the, the, the anti-French uh, sentiment, uh, and, and that's who they were fighting at the time. But that's who they were fighting at the time. It wasn't just about France. It was about trying to fight for or fighting for independence. And what was very interesting to me 
was that the French actually told the United States this on their way out the door. You, you don't want to do this. You're going to lose, and it's going to be a, an easy loss. And the U.S. said, no, we carry the bigger stick. We'll be just fine. And then went on to get to get to get to get beaten. So 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 my take on it is it's a it was a reaction to the Cold War. It was a reaction on the part of the United States to gain uh, influence in the region uh, as a move or as a as a as a as a an anti-communist move under the theory that communism was going to be the prevailing uh, mode in that region. Now, in that regard, they weren't wrong. But what McNamara is clear about is that they misinterpreted a, a nationalistic war uh, that happened to end up, you know, in a sense, reunifying Vietnam under the communist flag. So in a weird way, they weren't incorrect in their assessment, but they really, as is sad to say, or I'm sure no one in your audience is going to be surprised, the U.S. doesn't always do its homework as an understated way to say it. And they don't really drill down to the bottom of what's really, really going on. So they go in with half of an understanding or maybe even a third of an understanding and then try to make do. And, and that's my take on why the U.S. was involved in in, in Vietnam. You know, it's like they uh, I, I remember my mom. So my mom was one who pretty much educated me on the entire thing. But, but my dad, when I was growing up, he was really ashamed of what happened. And he it took him about 45 years to finally admit that Pol Pot was wrong. Wow. And so a lot of people um, and the audience and there's some Cambodians that do listen to my stuff. Uh, you guys have to remember that Pol Pot was also the victim. I know that sounds really fucked up to say, and I'm going to cuss in this one. I know that's really messed up to say, but you have to remember that Pol Pot was very disgusted with the French and the Vietnamese, and it was very xenophobic as well. So a lot of the Marxists don't talk about that stuff. They they always want to, especially here in the United States, they say that the Republicans or the right wing or Trump supporters are racist when in fact they have a history of that on their team. And so when that comes out, this is why when I come across Marxists online, for example, and guys, I don't hate Marxism or anything like that, but I just want you guys to understand that your assessment on the Vietnam War is kind of it's kind of biased in a way. And I hope that you guys come to my position and see things at a uh, entire whole level of the picture. So Pol Pot wanted to clean our blood, so he wants to cleanse the Laos from us, from the Thai, uh, the Vietnamese. But you guys don't even uh, the th the funny thing about Pol Pot was that he had royal blood in him as well so he had access to the palace so that's why he was he had he was educated at the Sorbonne his wife was the first Cambodian woman ever to was educated at Phnom Penh University so these were not stupid individuals well if I can jump in for just a second you know I just want to say that as much as um, communists uh, espouse the support of the people and the farmer and the proletariat, you'll notice that without exception, they all come from a hype, not, not just elite, but hyper elite backgrounds. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think it was like one person where I have a conversation with, I think they said Stalin. Was Stalin came from a peasant background or do you know? Um, I know, you know what? I honestly, now that I think about the history of reading for him, uh, they kind of say he, he sort of rose up from poverty and, you know, grew and grew. And he was very smart and he was very idealistic. I don't know that he necessarily came from a super uh, entitled background, but he rose up through the entitled ranks. 
and ultimately made his way into it. So he, he may, in fact, be kind of an exception, but ultimately he was uh, just as much uh, of an elitist as, as the rest of them were. I mean, we, we look at Che Guevara and his, his uh, medical degree. I mean, he was a medical doctor. You know, you don't find those in gumball machines. I mean, it's like what, what Castro was a lawyer. Yes, Castro was a lawyer. Yeah. So, yeah. Castro was, yeah, Castro was a lawyer and he had to remember Pol Pot was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And he executed intellectuals in the process of his purge. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, you know, the thing that, that, that really confuses me and the hypocrisy, especially in American politics, is that right-wing people are required to call out their bullshit. But when it comes to the left, nope, no responsibility whatsoever. And the you guys have to remember that Pol Pot and Leng Seri was in the French Communist Party, and they took that with them, and they made it their own. And in four years, they did that much damage. And you guys have to remember that in Cambodia currently, we are still suffering, and it's the in fact of the war. A lot of post traumatic stress disorder patients, and in Cambodia, we don't have a word for that. Uh, we have a word called anjit. Anjit means depression, but it it kind of means depression but it means loss of hope and the Cambodian people don't trust each other anymore and Hun Sen sold Cambodia's soil to China and that's I hope we get into China that's pretty interesting that we can get into but let's get into like postmodernism so let's so I was on a podcast recently with Mindwave and I was talking about postmodernism but I did not make I didn't do it justice and you guys have to remember I'm not an expert but I'm going to turn mm-hmm. to an expert. What's what's postmodernism? If you can if you can summarize it to the audience. Hmm. Well, um, I'm not so sure that there's a summary, but I will absolutely <laughs> do my best. So we know. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to. Sorry, I'm trying to find a place to start. But well, it's it, postmodernism, guys. It's um. It's so complicated, but yeah. it's it's so interesting too. Uh, we had a lot of scholars that came out during, like I think, like during the eighties. You were in, you were in university in the eighties, correct? Yeah, yeah. So that's was when the PC movement, the the, the movement started to happen, like the political correctness. Yeah, started to kind of take toll. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to. All right, so I'll start here. That along comes this giant book, you know, called Das Kapital. And it lays out basically this uh, this massive uh, economic system and way of thinking, by the way, that was needed to move the world away from its fallen state and move it into this grand scale of things where everyone cooperates and everything's wonderful. Except, of course, if you disagree with it, uh, then you're not your life isn't so wonderful. And it spawned many many different branches of thought. One of those branches of thought was postmodernism, because if you were to introduce a new economic system that took an entirely different approach to how it viewed the world, how it viewed interactions of people, how it how it viewed interactions of the state to those people, how it viewed interactions of the state with other states, um, you begin to um, attract a lot of really smart intellectuals who happen to also themselves be elitists. So there was a group of people in Eastern Europe who began to develop um, sort of the, the process of 
of how do you think about uh, society, meaning how do you think about society and how do you shape a citizenry's thinking about society? Because don't forget, socialism, communism, they're all based on behaviorist theories. And behaviorist theories are about whatever a person is, it's entirely socially induced, that people have no inherent anything about them. There's nothing about their personalities, nothing about their thinking, their desires, their interests that isn't socialized into them, is the, is, the, is the behaviorist view that is inherent and necessary in a socialist viewpoint, because it doesn't leave any space for anything to be naturally inborn. So one of the main things that one has to do is eliminate the things that would suggest that we have innate qualities. So that's why we're seeing today such a big battle over science, because it's not about the trivial sciences that they're actually fighting about. It's about erasing the larger and more entrenched sciences that know that when we are born, we are already born with multiple roadmaps that will enable our survival better than if we didn't have them. So, for example, if you have a baby, I've, I'm, you know, I learned about this, but I couldn't resist. Inborn in infants is a, is a reflex in the palm in, in their hands. And if you press your finger into the palm of an infant, that infant will reflexively grab your finger. And they took that to its extreme and said, okay, if you actually place, if you actually hang a baby from a pole or a, or a clothesline, the reflex will take over, the child will hang there and will not let go. And I saw this experiment done and I was fascinated by this. I said, that's the reflex and the travel. So I was like, so I managed to have, get my hands on somebody's baby years ago. And I, and I did it. I hung, I had the, I put the, the rope in the child's hand, the child grabbed onto it and the child didn't let go. And I left in maybe 10 seconds, you know, before anybody came back to see me, you know, experimenting on their child, but the, ch the child didn't let go. So my point in all that is that there are things that are built into us instinctually that enable our survival. But it is crucial that socialism erases all of our understandings of our innate uh, behaviors so that we are then open to receive external directions. So, so how this relates to postmodernism is it just basically, if I can sum it up, it, it's summed up as the method of social engineering. Ah, never heard okay. it like that before. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's so it took me this to, to 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 sort of sum it up so I could sort of encompass what I'm getting at and land with the punchline that it is the actual method of social engineering. So it is probably the smartest collection of ideas that I have ever heard in terms of how it works on the human psyche, how it alters the human psyche, and how it ultimately enables masses to do its bidding. And in my view, it's a tremendous amount of work to do something that in the end will always fail. Because the reason it will always fail is that communist economics ultimately has always failed. So it's a tremendous song and dance to encourage, or the common word now is to indoctrinate, swaths of people to believe a certain way, to evangelize, to get other people to think that certain way, until the entire society is run via social proof, meaning you believe it 
and you believe that that's what happened, and therefore I believe it, and the next person believes it, because somebody told us to believe it, social proof versus verified fact. Versus the fact that a gallon of water weighs approximately seven pounds, that a mile is 5,280 feet. You'll notice that the main motivation in our current society is to erase objective fact. One, dy one dynamic of postmodernism is that there is no such thing as objective fact. And therefore, nobody can be right and nobody can be wrong, which is to say that everyone has the same value no matter what they do, is a very common mantra. So, for example, you've heard it said probably more than a few times, diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. But in postmodernism, post there's no analysis of things of, that, are, that are said. You're told to basically believe it and accept it as true. Because the instant you start to examine whether or not diversity is a strength, you almost immediately discover that diversity is a weakness, that diversity is actually a problem. And as such, diversity unchecked is absolutely destructive. And here's the darker part. They know this. Really? The postmodernism? Correct. Post yeah. Because, again, since this is an intellectual exercise, the demand of postmodernism is that everyone must think the same. There is no diversity allowed in terms of thought inside postmodernism. And therefore, they know that diversity is not a strength. Uniformity is a strength. Collectivism, which by its definition is about uniformity, if not of action, of thought. So even within their own premise that they're selling us, they know that diversity is not a strength. It is a liability and a very severe one. Because as soon as you have uh, somebody thinking differently than you, that means that your idea could be taken down. And if you already start, start with a bad idea, then you have no chance of survival. So that's the big but unfinished story about what postmodernism uh, is about. So, but why, but, one, but your early question asked about what, how does, what's postmodernism's role in the Vietnam War? And it's a very interesting thing to answer because I don't think that postmodernism itself had anything to do with the, with the geographic region, with the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. But here's where it did have an influence. Basically, I believe it was five people that were the originators of postmodernism in Eastern Europe, and they tried to pump it in Eastern Europe for many years, and nobody was buying it. Because, for example, they tried to say, well, you know, the, the elitists won't, won't go to, you know, the, the, the rich people want the poor people to go to war for them. Well, the reality was rich people looked at it as a source of pride to go to war. And there really was no cultural divide when it came to wartime. The elites, the, the titled people, as well as the poor people were fighting literally side by side in wars, and they still do. So the dynamic of it being a class war never took hold because A, it wasn't true, and B, the people knew it wasn't true. So they rejected the postmodernists while they were in Eastern Europe, and they left. 
and they moved west. And where did they end up first? Good old sunny Southern California. California, yeah. 26th in Wilshire. Uh, Or was it 26th in in Montana? But basically right there in what's now largely uh, Santa Monica slash almost Brentwood. And they landed there in one of the most beautiful places to live on the planet and decided, hey, let's make everybody miserable. So they started their writings, they started their teachings, and gradually somebody had the idea of, well, the only place that we're really going to get a foothold here in the United States is through the universities. So they started to spread out in the universities. So there's right there, what, there's UCLA. Uh, you know, they started to head back to what? Um, there's um, San Diego with Marcuse. Marcuse, Marcuse is San Diego. Mm-hmm. Correct, yeah. Uh, I think they ended up at, and forgive me because parts of my my, memory, my knowledge of postmodernism have faded because I've, I just carry so much. So sorry if I'm not terribly specific, but I want to say, I want to say, and for, forgive me Northwesterners if I'm wrong, but I want to say Northwestern, but then we progress now to currently uh, that it dominates places like Columbia. It dominates Yale. It dominates, it's, it's dominated Harvard for quite a while in certain schools. Uh, and now it's, it's fair to say that almost the entire educational system of the United States is completely dominated by postmodernist thought. And if you dare not be a postmodernist in any of these schools, because, you know, diversity is our strength, they will tar you, they will feather you, and they will false and falsely accuse you of things and destroy your career. Um, and, and, that, and that's basically a very loose sort of description of, of postmodernism in general. Now, how does it relate to the Vietnam War? Well, basically, the foothold in the universities was really had already started in the 40s and 50s. And by the 1960s, you now had maybe the first, maybe the second generation of students who had never heard of any other political, political economic uh, uh, format uh, prior to coming to college and university. And the first thing that they're told is that their parents are evil for, for basically being communist and, and, and killing brown people. And, and certainly the oppression of black people in the United States is nothing but you know, evidence that, that this country is evil. And therefore, we have this fresh new system for you to buy into. And these kids said, you know what? I know my parents. My parents work for the State Department. My, parent, my, my dad's an, uh, uh, an aeronautical engineer. and He's building these planes that will then drop these giant bombs on brown people. Yes, my parents are evil. So it fostered a, 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 an early generation of kids who were about to run the world, uh, who now were beginning to move away from patriotism as, a, you know, U.S. style patriotism. They were starting to move away from believing in believing in capitalism. And they were gradually drifting toward, uh, well, you can say postmodern. They, they weren't drifting toward postmodernism. They, postmodernism was the tool to wedge them away from their fundamental values uh, and, you know, wedging them away from religion as well. Uh, and men, and I'll get to, I'll get to the why, 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 why the vilification of men is absolutely crucial in this dynamic. Um, but um, the kids got wind of the United States dropping more bombs on more brown people. And now that they were freshly minted socialists and communists from their freshly minted socialists and communist professors, now they're freshly minted socialists and communists. And now they're mad at the U.S. for dropping bombs on brown people. So it was the social engineering of the young people of the United States that ultimately had a, a, a role and slash impact on the attitudes about the Vietnam War here in the U.S. and ultimately had a hand in, 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 in ending it uh, when it finally uh, came to a close and ultimately contributed 
to the atrocities that went on in Cambodia. Right. I mean, it's like really, it's a really, uh, but to make it clear, they, the postmodernists weren't necessarily Marxism, right? That's more like a, um, Marxism is more like an economic system. I think that's where Dr. Jordan Peterson kind of messes up because he's like, um, he, they were, I think Foucault was a Maoist, correct? Uh, Not, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We don't have a Jamie. Jamie, where are you at, Jamie? <laughs> I'll be be your Jamie here. Hang on. (laughs) I think Michelle Foucault was a Maoist. And um, I think Jean-Jacques Derrida um, was a Marxist. But I'm I'm not really sure about... um, Because they're they're different. Go ahead. But see, here's the thing, though. Those are all apples that have fallen from the same tree. So it's not far-fetched to be mystified, you know, or, or not be mystified as to why they wouldn't have similar beliefs or similar goals. Um, if you're a Maoist, if you're uh, a Leninist, if you're a Trotskyite, if you're, you know, I mean, it, it's all apples off the same tree. Mm, mm. And that's that's the argument that I hear all the time from the communists. They were like, you know, Stalinism is not communism or Maoism is not communism or Pol Pot was not a Marxist. Did you see like the 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 kind of brain fart cycle that they're, they're doing which is like all over the place? Well, you know? that is that is actually a symptom of, of the po- of postmodernism. Yeah. That you focus on specific words, that you create um, this, Im- you, you emphasize certain words and de-emphasize other words very deliberately. And that's all you do. You never actually present an argument. And also akin and very deeply embedded in postmodernism is the dynamic of uh, critical theory. And the idea behind critical theory as a function of postmodernism, and this is how you destroy the establishment, you simply just vilify the establishment. You don't really propose a counter argument you just say well this is bad well the u.s is bad for bombing brown people and that's your entire premise that's your entire statement they're bad for doing this they're bad for you guys are bad you guys are bad and you just keep repeating it repeating it repeating it until enough people go yeah you guys are bad and now you have this mass movement of people who are saying orange man bad right and you know when i was growing yeah go ahead Mm -hmm. so when i was when i was growing up uh this is so. If you guys don't know this, me and McCall, we're both brown people. <laughs> Indeed, we are. Indeed, we are. <laughs> we're both. He's black. I'm Cambodian. So you know, we don't get burned by the sun. Woo! You know, it's like <laughs> really awesome. But it's like when I was growing up, a lot of people taught me, especially my professors when I was in college, that um, the USA was the reason why the genocide happened. That's pretty much what I was taught. I did not learn. And so the thing in high school that I, I just remember right now, that they they made communism look cool in my school, in my classes. So, Yeah. And they made communism look very cool by leaving out the fact that, you know, a billion people were put to death. They leave out, you know, that they just conveniently leap over uh, Vietnam and they leap over Cambodia uh, and they just leap over uh, all the thousands of people that turned to millions of people who were kidnapped, taken out of their houses, taken off to work camps, re-education camps, you know, uh, brutalized, tortured, and ultimately uh, and, and killed in large numbers. But yeah, other, but other, but, but other than that, communism's cool. Yeah, and it's sexy. They make communism sexy. That's the the thing that I see online, especially like in Reddit and stuff. And it's um, the the thing the the funny thing. It's just like majority of their ideas are beginning to take over in social media. So you, you can't really say anything as much anymore as, as a right winger. Yeah. Begin, it's, it's probably, it's getting worse in my personal opinion. 
Um, I'm getting bans. I don't know about McCall, but I'm getting bans and stuff like that for like little dumb things. And I remember I share a cartoon of a cartoon Hitler and shit. And it's like I talked about this in the previous podcast. It's from Cyanide and Happiness. It's just a cartoon of of Hitler fighting Jesus Christ and they shoot lasers in their eyes. It's, it's just a joke. You can't even joke about Hitler anymore. And you get banned. You get even, banned. Even to the point that documentaries are being banned because they talk about history. So that to me is very serious. And I would encourage you and your listeners to find a downloader and begin to actually start downloading content from YouTube. Um, because you can do it for the most part. There's a very few things that are that are copyright restricted, but I suggest that you pull it down because what's being pulled down, you know, inclusive of your um, files, um, are a tremendously valuable piece of history in that that's how they erase history. That's why the Irish are famous now for preserving the knowledge that went, that's why we have the dark ages because all that knowledge was purged out of society and the smart people actually took it and hid it only to come back for the Renaissance to share it again. And the same thing's happening right now. So history does repeat itself if you're dumb enough to repeat it. And, and, and we're watching it because the more that people don't know about socialism and communism, the more that they, and I discovered that those are the people that cause us to repeat history. They don't know what happened. They don't care about history. They don't care about what happened before them. So that obviously dooms them to repeat and, and absorb whatever they're told. The The demon of socialism, I believe, is this massive um, sort of, uh, I, don't want, I don't want to go as far as calling it like a spirit. But what it is, it's a it's a it's a way of thought that has permeated and and been passed down through generations, and it wreaks its havoc and it wreaks its destruction to the tune of millions of people dead, and it has a very sophisticated way of lulling people into believing that it's cool. It's like cigarettes. Cigarettes are cool, man, and then later on you're dying of emphysema and lung cancer. Right? It's the same thing. It's the same process. So you know, and I think as it relates to the word salad is that it beats knowing anything. And one of the things that I've identified is that it's a prerequisite to be a socialist. It's a prerequisite that you have no understanding of economics whatsoever. The thing that comes out of their mouths is stunning to me in terms of how they believe the world works from an economics perspective and why they believe that socialism will work. And then they start to describe how it works. And I'm like, well, there's nothing in the world that operates that way. Oh, but socialism will work this way. And it's like, hmm. It has operated that way and it failed. And then the next time it operated that way, it failed again. And it's still failing. And it's unsupportable because it assumes that people and how they think can be engineered by an external book and then they can be taught and ultimately forced to do communist bidding and it never, ever works that way. Mm -hmm. It's more like useful idiots. And they're using our kids as a weapon because when my dad joined the radicals, uh, he was young. Um, he didn't have a dad. So in our culture, if you are born a bastard, that's what they say, born a bastard. I hate using that terminology. Um, they are looked down upon. So my dad changed his entire identity just to join this party because you're nobody. Because when the Khmer reach when they execute you, you can be replaced with somebody else. And that's pretty much with with that's going on in our education system you're just a puppet per se but I, I want i want your your opinion on this so why did the 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 communists or like the socialists and the marxists what the reason why that i hear majority of the time from the radicals especially former antifa members is that they join the meet the, the the movement because it's a good movement where why 
why do they think that um, the Marxist or being a socialist or a communist is a moral thing in comparison to right wing? Where did that idea came from? Because they were told that that's true. Yeah, that's it. They were just told it. You know, again, this gets back to, um, you know, U.S. is bad. U.S. is bad. U.S. is bad. But we have this other thing over here that we want you to sign. So if option A is inherently bad, option B is inherently good. That's as deep as it goes. So easy. Yeah. These are not deep people. Now, the principles that they follow are incredibly dense, meaning they're incredibly complex and they're incredibly sophisticated in terms of what's being used on them. But in terms of how these people actually think, they're not deep at all. You know, and that's that's the that's the that's the wild part that that has I think fascinates me almost the most about this entire thing is that oh well if this over here is bad, this thing over here is good. That's it. That's the entire thing. It's like like the incident, for example, and, and me and McCall laugh about this yesterday when Joe Biden said that if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. You know, that and then I the justification from Democrats that, oh, he apologized. It's fine. He'll get away with it. So the, the this is the, the main tactic that the communists use all the yeah. time. It's, it's, because because to throw yeah. into that, Joe Biden, because Orange Man is inherently bad. Joe Biden, who is not Orange Man, is inherently good. Republicans, inherently bad. Democrats, inherently good. So that again, I mean, I can sit here all day and, and, and point out why how, how that thinking works and then we're perplexed that well you know we 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 get flummoxed and we go crazy and talk about hypocrisy right and and the hypocrisy is there but it doesn't answer the question what answers the question is over here is you know option a is bad option b is inherently good there's no examination of joe biden's record there's no exam i mean hillary it was the same thing you know trump bad hillary good nobody had any understanding about hillary's thing but since trump is since we're telling you that trump is bad we're also telling you that, that 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 Hillary is inherently good. Nothing could be further from the truth as it relates to Hillary, but because she's not the other thing, that means by definition and default that she's inherently good. It it, it does not you know the practice the, the the people's behaviors and attitudes inside socialist thinking are so remarkably childishly simple. But what gets them to that point? is where the complexity is. And that work was done, you know, a hundred years ago at this point. So they don't really have to do much. And with, with postmodernism, um, they, they reject grand narratives and then there's meta narratives. So uh, this is the argument that you hear all the time. I think, it, I think there was a, um, so I, I forgot his name, uh, but he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. He's a, he's a cool dude. I go, he's not really bad, but he was, his parents were, he was raised in Berkeley. So if you guys don't know, Berkeley is left wing uh very uh marxist you know kind of area this is where the incident where the professor uh bike lock a young man who was just having a conversation right in the middle i don't i'm, I'm not sure in on campus but it was that's where the bike lock incident happened uh he got arrested I, I i haven't um done my research on that uh what happened to him but i i i'm not really sure he lost his position but um um, he came from a family where they were Trotskyites. So the Marxist Trotsky, Leon Trotsky. Uh, so if you guys don't know this, Leon Trotsky was executed by what Stalin uh, with an ice pick to the back of his head in Mexico, Mexico. And um, 
the Trotskys are a little bit different in comparison to the Stalinists and the Leninists. So they're a little bit more kind of a libertarian-ish. I'm, I'm not saying libertarian, their political position, but that's pretty much what, who they are. But he's willing to come and have a conversation with Dave Rubin and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't remember his name, but um, I remember he ha- was having a debate, a debate with uh, Stephen Hicks, Professor Stephen Hicks. If you guys don't know who that is, he is the the professor who um, uh that's currently kind of deconstructing, uh, deconstructing postmodernism, basically. So it's like, wow, it's like one thing after the other. So it's really a complicated process, and he's been doing it for decades. Yeah, so, and Jonathan he- Hayden is another resource for uh, dismantling postmodernism as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, I encourage you to look them up, even pull their videos from YouTube before they disappear. Yeah, exactly. So, and then um, they were having a debate, and uh, I, I don't remember his name, but he was debating Stephen Hicks about the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and. Um, he said something. I don't. I don't have the quote, but he said something along the line like he was denying the Holocaust. Like <laughs> this is your idea, mm-hmm. but is your idea true? And if it is true, can you prove it's true? But at the mm-hmm. same time, if you can prove that it's true, can you prove 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 it's true? So it goes on and on and on in circles until you just you just gave up. You right. just gave up. It's more like an intellectual like um, roadblock. Correct. That's 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 the that's that that is um, that's critical theory in practice. Right. Deny, deny, deny. Basically, complain, complain, complain. Because you can't outright deny stuff for very long. That gets boring. But if you simply criticize something, criticism can go on forever. And they discovered that's why it's that much more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's beginning to grow and grow. And this is where we have intersectionality and that's when it so intersectionality so if we can put it in simple terms as much as possible i would say it's more like a victim hierarchy basically so they use your identity to uh this is during like the 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 60s so if you guys have a chance go on joe rogan's podcast where he talks talks to tom o'neill tom o'neill is the one who talks about charlie manson and the the race war uh, between blacks and whites during the 60s and the 70s and stuff like that. Now, they brought the game a little bit more. Now, what they're trying to do is an identity war. So McCall, for example, if you put me and McCall, for example, together, McCall is a black man. I am a Asian woman. So if there was a, cr- a crime committed, who are like I stabbed some, somebody, for example, and McCall happens to be in the situation that I was in, in the same area, they were probably, I can blame McCall for it and get away with it. If I can't, because of the fact of intersectionality points, I'm more weaker than him. I am more I just because women were oppressed for centuries and, and, and before that, I have the right to get away with things that he can't get away with things. And that's intersectionality. You work your way to the top. If you are a white male, you're at the bottom, my friend. You do not work your way to the top. And just because Bacall is a man, he's at the bottom, too. You can't work your way up at all. And so they do this to, um, what's that word? To make more of a tension between people. And if you have tension between people, what's going to happen? You problematize things, right? You make things very difficult and very angry. And so what's going to happen? You use that anger. You are a woman of color. You should feel like shit. So you use that as an argument. And as you can see today, you see a lot of the pronouns and the different um, genders and stuff like that. So 
I personally will call you by your personal pronoun and have to remember it's a, a, a personal negotiation. But that, but my problem is, is when you start to force somebody to call you by your particular pronoun, for example. So all these things that you're seeing right now. So intersectionality is a new form of it's, it's the birth of postmodernism. That's well, I would, I would, I would argue that it's not new. And this is, this is why, um, when the professors are busy saying that communism is so cool, they're leaving out how it actually operates. And I think this is where the Gulag Archipelago becomes such a very important um, book because this is exactly how the Soviet system runs, that you are granted privileges within society based on fundamentally your identity. So if you're from this part of the country or if your family name is this or what have you, uh, that's exactly how they broke up the, the hierarchies and fostered distrust in Soviet society. And that's exactly how it ultimately worked inside the gulags. So it's not, so again, there's nothing about anything, socialism, postmodernism, intersectionality, that's new. It's all existed. It's already there. But because we are not educated in what went on inside the actual Soviet system, we're completely ignorant of how sophisticated these social controls actually were, and how um, aggressive these social controls actually are enforced. I mean, we have Canada, you know, Bill C-17, which mandates that you have to um, call uh, people by their pronouns. And if you fail to do so, it's a crime. And Jordan Peterson's protest of Bill C-16 um, uh, was him saying, look, as soon, because he did the homework, of course, because one of the things that socialists are famous for is never doing their homework. So so if you ever ask for evidence and facts, evidence and fact doesn't matter. Uh-oh, is that still with yeah, us? No, I hear, oh, yeah, I hear. Okay. Yeah. I sort of beep. Um, um, evidence and fact are a function of the bourgeoisie. They're a function of the quote-unquote evil elitists and therefore facts and evidence should be dismissed out of hand because it's inherently bad. So as it relates to what actually went on in the Soviet Union, because facts and evidence are inherently bad, therefore the Holocaust never happened. Therefore, socialism is this grand uh, utopia. Therefore, your life will be great. Just sign here on the bottom line. So it's incredibly complex and it's going on constantly. It, it, It never lets up. And as a result, you know, you have these young people who, I mean, if you ask a young person now, have they ever been taught the bad parts of socialism? And the answer will inevitably be no. Have, have they ever actually been taught capitalism and how it functions? Their answer will inevitably be no. They, they don't know anything about it. They know, they know nothing about history. They know nothing about economics. But they know they want to change the entire economic system because they've been told there's not a single premise that anybody espousing socialism has that they studied themselves. I've yet to meet that person. And I've been on a quest for the past at least 10, maybe closer to 20 years to find out if there's anyone who espouses socialism that has garnered any knowledge on their own. And the answer is no. It's pretty much just like repeating all over. It's, the thing is that that I, I've heard somebody say, I'm, I'm not really sure where it was, but, uh, uh, you are, you're fresh out of high school. 
And you guys remember that at the age of 16, 17, and 18, okay, and your hormones are raging and you're just like all over the place and you're like smashed the Boraji when you're in, in reality, all majority of these people are fucking Boragis themselves, right? They are upper middle class. And just like we went back in the beginning, these people are from from a very well-off family. And if you guys don't know this, Pol Pot, his family owned a lot of rice plantation. So they don't know. They don't even know who Pol Pot is. They're like, who's that? I'm like, really? No, told you. They have no idea. And, and I just read the other day that I, I think it's Germany mm -hmm. uh, that 92% of people that call themselves socialist in Germany still live, live in, the, in their parents' homes. 92%. I, I, I think it's more like like the, the idea. So with me... I was lucky enough. So if you guys don't know this, my dad tried to indoctrinate us with communism. So we had the Khmer National Anthem, the Khmer Rouge National Anthem. So if you guys don't know, this is the Communist Party of Cambodia, the CCK. And so it's it's so I did not know the music, but I thought it was pretty interesting. So it taught you like nationalistic kind of for your country type of attitude. Um, and I did not know this, but my dad kind of dropped everything along the way of the fact that he 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 didn't let go of what happened. And I think that that adds a lot to, you know, he drank a lot. So um, he did some nasty shit. And I think my dad is 65 now. So about like two years ago, he said, yes, Pol Pot was wrong. And um, you can just tell that he, the, the shoulders that he had, he carried onto himself was like lifted if you guys don't know this Pol Pot wanted the West to win he got fucked up he got fucked by the Chinese and he got fucked by the USA pretty much everybody all around him kind of screwed him over so he's like you know he wanted the West to win and he just gave up and pretty much when you gave up you know everything's a lot better so uh we're not suggesting you guys listeners or audience who are you know if this podcast is being shared to you guys we're not suggesting you guys to be right wing Okay, we're not telling you guys to do anything, but what we're asking you is to educate yourself on your political positions before you espouse it. Yeah, and I would I would absolutely second that because the trouble is they've been taught to not do that, and therefore their 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 baseline is to receive this information. So for many people, thinking on their own is absolutely a foreign idea to them. And I think that if, if, if they can begin to recognize that thinking on their own is a completely foreign idea to them, that, that there's this other option, that, they, that, that it's completely almost like self-directed, then that would help. But, uh, but I completely support your premise. You know, you have to educate yourself because, you know, the, the sad part about it is that the standard schools, even back in the day, were not very good at educating people in history because... You know, they wanted people to learn about, you know, the U.S. They wanted people to learn about economics. But even back then, the teachings were still a bit more honest than they are now. I find that the education system now is so incredibly skewed that it's literally indirectly dangerous. And, um, you know, so, yeah, you have to fight for this information. I mean, that's why I became a, a researcher. I'm fascinated by the research because basically nothing I'm told uh, in terms of any mainstream source um, has proven to be true. Oh, yeah. You know, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Oh, wait, that wasn't true. Oh, um, yellow cake. Oh, that wasn't true. Oh, um, the premise for, uh, oh, I mean, um, I just found out recently that Muammar Gaddafi, for example, has been used and the used as the well-paid scapegoat for any conflicts going on between the U.S. and the Middle East. 
um, I found out, and I'm still, and this is why I'm still, you know, even when I find out, I still do the research. But basically, the so basically, we know that Lock, we heard about Lockerbie Scotland going back to like 1986, I think it was. Pan Am jet 747 leaving Lock, leaving um, the UK, flying over Lockerbie Scotland, blows up, crashes down, explodes, everybody dead. Headed back to JFK. Well, the international investigation began to reveal that it was Syria that was behind the bombing. But the trouble was Syria is too well connected into the international system to go after them as the, 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 the quote unquote big bad guy. So it was Muammar Gaddafi in Libya who was blamed in spite of the evidence. It was Libya that was blamed for the Lockerbie bombing. And ultimately, Gaddafi took the heat for it. And then there was another incident that happened, that there was no evidence that Gaddafi was involved. He took the heat for it again. So if you notice that we go back to the first Gulf War, you know, who gets bombed out or, or, or the retaliation, it's Reagan against Gaddafi. Um, and then if we track it back to Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and the Arab Spring, who's the only leader she went after? In, 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 in real terms, the only leader she really, really went after was Muammar Gaddafi. Now, she went after Egypt, and Egypt, in effect, collapsed. But the biggest prize on her scale was Muammar Gaddafi being, being overturned. Because Libya doesn't really have any allies in the area. Libya is not really anybody's friend. And therefore, there would be no widespread retaliation against Libya. So as a result, Libya was always the convenient scapegoat. And Syria was always left off the, uh, left off the map. And the intelligence community, I'm sorry, the international community said, no, we're just going to look the other way because they had bigger plans. And that's just the microcosm of stuff that I'm still doing the research on. But again, Henry Kissinger played a big role in this, the same way that he played a very big role in, in, in South Vietnam. I mean, in South, uh, Southeast Asia. So again, this is why this is such a, a daunting topic, because when you learn how it's all connected, when you learn how big it all is, and when you learn that what you learned and what you sat through in your, in your, in your elementary school classes are all related, it can be kind of overwhelming when you really get how thorough and how complete this experience actually is over top of all of us. And, you know, woof. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I, uh, there was a, there was an incident where you and I weren't, weren't friends yet. We we met uh, last. Those were dark times. Those were dark yeah. times for me, by the way. Yes. What do you mean dark times for you? It was yeah. sad. It was before I knew you, and and, <laughs> my, and, and once you uh, once once uh, once once we were friends, my life changed entirely. Yeah, I, I, if you guys don't know this, me and McCall, he teaches me. He's like my sensei. He teaches me everything especially what you're seeing right now because i'm just like so fascinated i you should have been a professor in my personal opinion but like when he, i'm not, I'm not a, but i'm obviously not a leftist so that would never work out <laughs> we don't even have a lot of like conservative professors do we like if you can no, it's a ratio of one to 12 right so for every conservative professor there's 12 socialists and this is this is national huh? that's not fair i said that is not fair at all because well, how, how diversity is our strength after all right so 
<laughs> I mean, like, how do you expect your ideas to be challenged if you don't have your political opponent to kind of, you know, keep you in track of your ideas? I mean, like, for example, when like you, with when you don't expect when you don't expect or allow to have your ideas challenged, it's easy. That's true. That's a good point. And uh, you always like uh, correct me. And I, I like that. I, I, this is my suggestion, guys, to my to my audience. Make sure you're friends with people who are genuine about if they're correcting you don't be friends with people who are like oh well you know they're they're arrogant and sarcastic about it like throw throw you kind of this is both right and left okay so mccall is either um i don't know your political position i mean you don't have to like tell us but like he's he keeps me balanced and i love friends like that you you have to surround yourself with people who think differently than you but but who who's willing to have an interesting discussion with you who who will open your mind to th to things and this is why i chose mccall to have this conversation with because he and I, he teaches me along the process and guide you uh, don't be friends with people who are like, oh, I know everything. Everything's done. I mean, what a boring ass life to live if you think you know everything. He's even he admit that he's really he's researching still at at his age. And so I'm the same way. And then like I want to learn. And so that's why I started podcasting so I can have interesting guests like this. And McCall, you're always welcome to come back and slay some some people if there's a debate that I'm going to hold. But it's like that's that's what we see today. And we're both in California. Mm -hmm. And the issue is here in California, a lot of right-wing people um, are looked down upon as being dumb. They don't know nothing. They're racist, you know. And if you guys don't know this, I'm in, in I'm in Fresno. I'm in Central California. Um, where where are you at? Like Santa Monica or Santa Barbara? Santa, Mon Santa, Santa Monica. Monica. He's in mm -hmm. Santa Monica. So totally different um, different area. So I'm more in the poverty type of area um but we in, in fresno california we did have our own you know lights we get a lot of people because of the university of california fresno state uh, we had an incident where one professor who is a marxist mind you she said she wants to go to richard spencer's house and bomb his house and his kiddos and then there was an incident where she wanted to do something to trump we had one professor who wanted to kind of hang Trump during that period of time, which is his freedom of speech. But um, I don't know. What, what's your opinion on that? Like on, on a professor? Like, so you and I, we, we, we agree on freedom of speech is our, our first amendment rights. But what's the line? Like, why can't a professor say that? Or can a professor get away with it? Or what's your opinion on that? Like, is there a certain kind of limitation on free speech if you are, I don't know, a president, for example, or a professor? I'm not exactly clear on, on, on the question. Are you asking about free speech or are you asking about who? Like free speech, like, for example, like the teacher. So the professor, she kind of went all out and she was on a radio show here in Tower, Tower District. So she literally said that she wants to get a gun and like shoot up people. Mm -hmm. Can, is, the fact that the reason why she, she didn't get in trouble, she had her job back. Mm -hmm. Okay, so could you imagine like a right wing person say the same thing? How come they can say it and get away with it? The left wing people, but not the right wing people. Don't they have freedom of speech? And the main uh -huh. argument that I hear is that, oh, well, you know, he's a, I don't know, a politician or he's a professor. Um, like, I feel like it's unfair in a way like there's certain i don't know i i, I don't want to say there's like a certain limitation of free speech but i'm not really sure i'm an absolutist but i'm it, it's I, we're not saying like you know oh you know the building's on fire you know that's the main argument argument that we hear about free speech so like is there like a certain is i don't know i'm on the position of there's certain times for certain like there's times for different things if that makes sense 
You know? Well, yeah. Okay. So I think I have a better understanding of your question. And you're actually trying to ask multiple uh, questions. There's a large, there's actually a pretty large number of questions in there. And, and I'll break it down this way because first and foremost, um, free speech is the first amendment for a reason that without free speech, we don't get any of the other rights. Nothing else matters if we don't fundamentally have free speech. And I heard it said that for people who don't traffic in having their own ideas, the privilege of free speech, the right to free speech is meaningless to them because they're not really using it. They're not coming up with ideas. They're not coming up with thoughts. They're not, they're not looking at the ironies of life and coming up with nuanced ways of, of dealing with anything. So they actually literally have no need for free speech. So there's that. So that's the, the free speech lie on that one. But if we go back and look at who gets to say what, it gets back to the premise of intersectionality. So if so, if I go, if I if I first look at where I sit on the on the inter intersectional victims hierarchy, if I am high on the intersection intersectional victims hierarchy, therefore that entitles me to say certain things that I will be allowed to get away with. Right. So if I so in other words, if I as living on the top of the victims the victimization hierarchy, therefore I am inherently good. So if I speak into the megaphone of those people who subscribe to the, to, the hierarchy, to the victimization hierarchy, whatever I say is inherently good. And it doesn't matter what I say. Even if I'm calling for genocide, because of who said it, it's inherently good. And therefore, if I kill somebody who is in our inherently bad category, that statement is also inherently good. So to find Jordan, people like Jordan Peterson on the inherently bad end of the scale is frightening to me, hilarious, but horrifying at the same time. Because there couldn't be a more amenable, kind, well-intentioned person in academia than Jordan Peterson, but he's touted as being a hyper-evil, racist, evil person doesn't make any sense. So this again gets us back to postmodernism and and of course critical theory because if you just anybody that we can criticize is inherently bad. But here's the thing. Just like people are ignorant of what happened in 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 the in the, in the early days of the uh, communist revolution, once you're out of bad guys on the other side, you're inevitably because of exactly this principle the only people left are going to be people on your side that you're then going to go after. So that's why the left always inevitably eats itself, because it cannot see the full spectrum of its own rules. It's not that smart. And I'll say that openly. It's not smart. It's a free for those we favor until we don't favor you anymore. And then we ice pick you in the back of the head in Mexico. Exactly. And you guys don't know this. Stalin, Lenin, and Trotsky's were, you know, together. And then yeah. Trotsky. Why did he live to Mexico again? Why did he chose Mexico? That's that's my under Oh yeah, it makes sense. It Better makes weather. Sense. Better yeah. weather. <laughs> so yeah, I mean look, Adele Adele was like the most favored nation status among those who believe healthy at any size. Right. And then she lost weight. And now she's the most evil person on the planet. Mm -hmm. To those who favor health at any size. 
Mm-hmm. And the situation, the situation with Andy No is another mm-hmm. great example. It's, so, it's insane. Exactly. So if you guys, uh, when Andy No, Andy No was attacked, I believe, was it last year in June? Do you remember? I don't know the month, but I do know that it was last year, and I believe it was during the summer. So let's say June. Okay, so during so he was uh, attacked by an an anti fascist mm-hmm. um, uh, people, and he had a concussion. I believe a concussion. Uh, I, I... He had a concussion. He had a brain bleed. A brain bleed. I believe he also had uh, some elements of a fractured skull, and ended up in the in the hospital for about three or four days, and actually experienced. And we got to experience him in his interviews. Um, having cognitive cognitive recall issues for quite a, quite a while. He knew what was going on, and we got to hear it going on. And it was really interesting that he literally experienced brain damage as a result of this attack. Exactly. And and, and you guys don't know this. Andy No is gay. He mm-hmm. went to Vietnam, and he opened to his family that he was gay. So another thing is is that— And he's uh, Vietnamese, and which he makes Vietnamese. him a— and he's a brown person. Yeah, he's a brown person. And and, and you remember the earlier that um the the during the sixties and the seventies, they were told that, you know, the brown people were getting bombed. Andy No's family was bombed and they escaped during the period of time of my family when they escaped uh to Thailand. Um I'm not really sure wh- where his family uh came from. Um I know in Vietnam it was during like the communist revolution as well, um when Ho Chi Minh took over. But um the, his family came about the same time as my family here in the United States. So we're we're first generation immigrants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um so the funny thing was is that he and I get accused of working for white nationalists. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how bad it is, guys. Mm-hmm. So I fight for freedom of speech for my right wing friends. And I have always held a position and, and McCall knows this, that I always held that classical liberalism position. Um, I'm not really sure where I am in the political spectrum. Some say that I'm libertarian. Some say that I am libertarian socialist, which is an oxymoron in my personal opinion. <laughs> and then there's a libertarian right. And so I'm pretty much right, right in the center, pretty much on the bottom of everything. I'm more moderate. In, in situation and I grew up with this idea of more of the individual sense so everything that you do is more a personal responsibility and accountability which is really really important for an individual to thrive and move through the hierarchies here in the states and in communist countries you are equal you're done you, you will not move anywhere in in the circle it's pretty much the top brothers and sisters they're on top the ANCAR you're done. You're not moving mm-hmm. up to the hierarchies. Whereas in the United States of America, we uh, hold to the constitution that we have the right to pursue happiness and we have the right to property. And so, and at the same time, the, it's the individual that matters. Um, and so we can move around in the hierarchy system and for, and I'm going to bring this up and I hope it's okay for you to McCall. So McCall lives in a very, very beautiful part of California in my personal mm-hmm. opinion, very beautiful mm-hmm. and he's black. So mm-hmm. if you compare his situation to, I don't know, the situation of blacks in Chicago, for example, um, mm-hmm. it's bad. So McCall is where he's at because of decisions. My parents. And my parents. Because of my, because my mother and father were together. Yep. Yep. And which, so, which opens up a whole nother category yeah. of conversation, but that's the answer. Yeah. So, and and I had my parents as well, even though like my dad was very, you know, very neglectful in certain things, but I had my parents. So he was I, busy. He was busy. Yep. <laughs> executing. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, I had both my parents. And so um, that helped a lot in my development. Um, I grew up very hardcore. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't in gangs or anything like that, but I, I, that 
living experience in that environment. Um, and this is the conversation that I had with Mario, where we talk, uh, Estrada from Mario Presents, where we talk about our, our upbringing. And um, I, I never really saw myself as somebody who's jealous of anybody. Like, I'm not jealous mm-hmm. of, you know, McCall being in Santa Monica. That's awesome. That's a beautiful place. And I'm so happy for him. And I, t- I was taught this because of the fact that I was raised Buddhist as well. So um, I think with the, 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 the young socialists that you see today, especially here in California, they always say, eat the rich. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Don't we need people like Elon Musk to, mm-hmm. you know, innovation? Mm-hmm. People like Jeff Bezos, you know, mm-hmm. like Bezos, you know, with Amazon, a lot of the poor people can order online now um, mm-hmm. using their food stamps. And so that's like a development. That's a win, you know. And mm-hmm. just like you said earlier, no matter what, millionaires are bad, billionaires are bad, period. The Boraji mm-hmm. has to go. When mm-hmm. in reality, they all the Bolshevik Borajis themselves. I think they're trying to keep like their position in the hierarchy, not really knowing it. But that's just my theory. You know, it's like majority of these people are white. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, diversity is our strength, right? So, you know, once you begin to look at it, we call them myths. I just call them what they are is lies. And, and, and to say the word lie doesn't really hold any meaning anymore because everyone accuses everyone else of lying. I mean, I was uh, on Facebook the other day, of course, this is a great place for, you know, warm and welcome, welcoming universe for debate, you know, cogent fact-based debate. And um, we were talking about uh, a different subject, but related subject, but ironically, but still a different subject. And not only did I present my case for this subject, but I also demonstrated that I've been researching this particular subject. Uh, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just... So the current debate in the West in general uh, is this whole dynamic of the uh, of the gender wage gap. And not only did I have an opinion of this particular facet? Because it was one facet in a bigger, bigger conversation. But I also revealed to him that I have 20 years experience of researching the gender wage gap, what causes it, why it persists, and, I, and that I even came up with a solution for dealing with it and ultimately eliminating it. And his only response was, you're just lying. I, I and, and mind you, I also shared with him the fact that I created an online video training program to help with people who struggle with negotiating, because that's really one of the fundamental reasons for the, the wage gap is that 90, basically 90, it basically breaks down to more than 90% of women who, when they're offered a job, do not ask for more money. Whereas, so basically... Seven, only 7% of women ask for more money when they're negotiating a job compared to 57% of men. Now, that right there tells you a lot in terms of who's going to get paid more over time. And when I actually started interviewing women about this, basically all of them said that they have never even thought to negotiate for more money when they're offered a job. They just simply took what they were offered. And... and the claim on the part of the critical theory postmodernists is that it's, and the, especially the intersection, intersectionalists, is that women are paid less as a systematic approach to oppressing them. When there is literally, in, in current times, there is literally zero evidence to support that claim. And in fact, I'll further support that by saying that there's no actual economist that supports that claim. 
I've, I've not found a single actual economist that says that, yeah, it's oppression. In fact, they've said exactly the opposite. There's a female professor at Harvard School of Business, and, it's a, and I say female specifically because it's obviously relevant to this topic. And she's been published a number of times, and she's identified that, it's, that, the, that the differences in the wage gap all boil down to choices and actions. Number one, the choice of profession that, that a woman chooses to go into and her actions as it relates to um, uh, her negotiating her salary, uh, negotiating her benefits, and continuing to do so. Period. Now, I read this after I had done my homework, but my homework and research says exactly the same thing. And I also have evidence of being able to impact that scenario. So I, I, I created a training program. I created, I created a methodology. I created a step-by-step -step process. And then of the women who used it, they saw their incomes go up automatically. They saw their general well-being go up. They saw their relationships get better. And they, they, they overall were happier. And they were under less stress. So not only did I identify the problem, I identified the solution and have a provable solution. Yet this guy who's, I, he's a socialist, right? He, he is an Antifa flag carrying socialist. And I didn't know this when I was engaging with him early on, but uh, all he said was I was lying. That was his entire argument. So when it, when it comes to, you know, critical theory, they just crit criticize and take and, and they move on. So, as it relates to Andy No, for example, and the lies is that, well, if you're a brown people, you're here on the scale. And if you're a gay, you're here on the scale. But since Andy No had a position that they didn't like, Andy No is inherently bad. Therefore, Andy No is an enemy. Therefore, we can attack him. It doesn't matter to them. So there is no, uh, remember, for them, there is no objective truth. So literally, the reality is that truth is whatever they say it is. And they want to control everything. And truth is whatever they say it is. And guess who said that? Oh, Joseph Goebbels. Hmm. And if you guys don't know who that is, he was a Nazi. <laughs> he was indeed a Nazi. Exactly. He was a Nazi. And, and he was, I, I don't have much information about him, but uh, I know that he was ruthless. So along like every Nazi. So the thing is, is that, I don't like being put on this victim hierarchy because it just, it was really, I don't want to use my, um, my upbringing as a way for me to dominate an other person. I just want to work on myself and that's all I'm concerned about. I don't give a damn about what Elon Musk is doing. I don't care what McCall is doing. I don't care what you're doing. You know, I'm trying to work on myself and, and just like, you know, bring up Dr. Peterson, always, you know, compare yourself and compete with yourself. Don't try to compete with Elon Musk. Of course, you're gonna lose. I mean, the dude's brilliant. You know, um, he has been tremendously hilarious over the time. You know, it's like he's progressing. And, and and if you guys don't know this, Elon Musk is getting attacked because he said red take the red mm -hmm. pill, and there was a rose of the democratic socialism. So, uh, see if you guys noticed that Elon Musk has created. He's the only person, well, along with a couple others, who created a car that was very good for the environment that's good for the environment um it's it's i don't know if you guys if you guys drive a tesla or not um but it it's really good for the environment really good car well, well I'll, I'll offer this as a thing because he's not the only one you know there's been many but he is the most successful independent electric car maker to date 
there are others, but you know, you'll notice that the, the bigger the big electric cars are made by you know who Chevy, Cadillac, uh, you know the hybrid Toyota, for example. So those are the biggies. But as far as independent car manufacturers go, he's been the the single most successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is getting what like the um, the co creator of the Matrix told to fuck him right for great that's yeah. awesome just like. Just like you with the anti-fash person calling you a liar, and that's his entire argument. That's their argument. They have nothing to say. They would say "fuck you," or they would just like, "Oh, I'm not going to listen to you. You're a liar." And you, you were trying to figure out. I think it was. Um, you remember that the the engineer that was fired from Google? What was his name? You remember? Uh, yeah. yes, I do. Yeah, we were trying to think in our head, but he was trying to find the solution as to why there's not many female engineers, and he got crucified for it because these people don't want to—they don't want to know. They don't want to know. I want to know. I want to get better in my life. Sure, come on, man. You know, I—I—if I, you put yourself in that position of 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 being a victim, and it's more like a psychological abuse as well, and it's a cycle that the postmodernists are—they uh, succeeded. Mm-hmm. And doing it as well, and so with the intersectionalists, they they succeeded in doing so. If and and I try to sit down like and and hear what they're trying to say, and it's just like it doesn't. I don't see the the things that they see. And if you guys don't know this, I grew up poor. Uh, I grew up rough, and um, I don't know what they're talking about. Like I, it's like they want me to hate myself. If that makes sense, no, they want me to hate other people. That's what they're trying to do. Right, but to hate other people, you have to start by hating yourself. Exactly. And so and and by hating yourself is expressed as well. I'm not as privileged as that other guy. Jealousy is a form of self-hate. If right. You look at it that way. Right. Right. So it's like, well, I, I wasn't born in this side of town. Therefore, I, I, mean, I feel bad about myself. That is all subtle forms of self-hate to more advanced forms of self-hate. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And it, and if you guys don't know, this is the the Columbine shooters is another good example of if you play God. So these guys start to hate themselves. Mm-hmm. And so then they started to execute other people in the process. And this is where the intersectionalists come in. And I'm not saying that they were the reason why the Columbia shooting happens. That's a totally different um, um, conversation that I'm going to have with another person who used to be a former Klan member. So we're going to talk about that particular incident. But um, it, it makes you kind of see the world as shitty. Um, it makes mm-hmm. you see that I think Jean-Paul Sartre said it best, hell is other people. Mm-hmm. And then if you have that mindset, then you start to see everything becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Which gets us right into the fundamental premise of critical theory. If everything is a problem, critical theory, you get to cr- criticize it. You don't have any solutions. You just get to go criticize it. So it's the perfect nihilistic milkshake. Mm-hmm. Perfect. It's Perfect. And what are you going to do? You're going to have. So in me, in, this is me. And, and and like I said, I don't hate and I don't hate anti-fascism. I'm, I'm against anti-fascist, too. But if you guys see the little soldiers that they have, mm-hmm. there are to me. But see, not, if you go ahead. If, if you don't have any knowledge of history, you don't have any idea how actual fascists function. And you'll believe, as people have done whatever they're told. So what do actual fascists do? Actual fascists go out into the community and they beat people up. Actual fascists go out in the community and they break windows and they intimidate and they attempt to scare people. That's what actual fascists do historically. So 
If you fast forward it now to a group that calls themselves anti-fascists, fighting this uh, group of people that they've made up and just randomly accused of being fascist, so that group over there is bad, therefore we're inherently good. So no matter what we do, what we're doing is inherently good. So if I crack somebody over the head with a bike lock, it's inherently good. If I throw a milkshake at Andy No, that's laced with concrete, which will burn him, and then crack him in the head with a bike lock to give him brain damage, what we did is inherently good. It's not more complicated than that. It's and horrifying. Doxing, and they're doxing people too. So well, the- yeah, and, dox, and doxing is a form of that person's bad. We must punish them. So if you guys don't know uh, history again, Benito Mussolini mm-hmm. was a fascist. And mm-hmm. if you guys don't know this, he had a soldiers, a bunch of soldiers called the black shirts. And mm-hmm. they wore black shirts. And what they do, they went and beat up people. Mm-hmm. The same thing with Antifa, what they're doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. So mm, you guys. And mind, think- you, and mind you, I'll throw out that in Europe at the time, uh, fascism was actually doing its best to actually take over uh, all of you know, Europe and in the Isles. So you had your, your brown shirts uh, in, in Germany. You had, you also had a brown shirts, if I'm not mistaken, in Ireland. Uh, they were black shirts in, um, in, in Great Britain. Uh, so basically every country that was trying to have a fascist movement um, was in fact wearing some form of shirts that was going on beating people up. Right. Yeah. Right. So and it was the thing. Yeah. And so, um, we're getting accused. I think McCall gets accused too, as well of being a fascist. I get accused of being a fascist. Um, I was working on a project called, uh, inside the mind of Pol Pot. And I wanted to invite Nate there. You guys don't know who Nate there is. Nate there was a journalist that saw, was the last journalist who saw Pol Pot died. Um, I don't know what happened to Nate there. And if you could, if Nate there, if you're listening to this, you're always welcome to come onto my podcast. We can have a conversation. Um, I know you're sick. Um, but you and I got into a disagreement and you call me a fascist. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's not really cool. Um, we get accused of many things and a uh, majority of the people that attacks me, attack me are white. Um, so I don't know. I don't even know what they stand for in the political left. And nothing, um, nothing. They stand, for, they stand for nothing. Yeah. And I don't say that as a pejorative. I can say that I can step by step walk through the process and prove conclusively that they believe in absolutely nothing. In other words, let's, let's, let's take race, for example. How can you say that you speak for a race of people that you know nothing about? If you take the majority of these activists, they know nothing about actual black people. So how can you have a moral stand? How can you have any kind of say-so? How can you have any type of credibility if you know nothing about the subject that you're actually claiming to be working in, 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 in behest of? And I could go on, but they know nothing about black people. And it's really amazing to me because just think, just think how this, this question of oh no, voter ID laws are racist. Why? Because we're, we're telling you that they're racist. So what does that mean? Well, it disenfranchises black people who you know don't necessarily have IDs. But you go to any city and walk up to any black person and be like, do you have an ID? Well, yeah. Was it any problem getting that ID? No. So they're lying and they're completely ignorant of what reality is for black people. Yet they're claiming to be the defenders of black people. But the reality is, and Malcolm X has now become famous again for saying so, the greatest, the greatest enemy of the black person is the white liberal. 
Wow. And it was, and, you know, and in, in his inimitable, straightforward way, he said it in the 60s. The worst enemy of black people is the white liberal. And now he's just become famous for saying it again because somebody discovered the recording. But Malcolm X would be the first person the liberals throw off the bus. Mm-hmm. Dr. King yeah, he, is he, now, he, right, okay? <laughs> only, only to discover that none of these people were Democrats. Most of, I, I, don't, I actually don't know what Malcolm X's political affiliate, and he probably didn't have one because he was Muslim. But, but I know Dr. King was Republican. And yeah, all these people were thrown off the bus. So, so I could walk through and tell you that liberals don't have any uh, moral standing or moral code at all. They have a bunch of beliefs that they've received from other people. They have beliefs that they act on. But if you challenge them as to how to, if you, if you get under the hood and see what the mechanism is, there is, there's nothing there. They have so much like misinformation about us in particular because we are people of color and especially like of the Cambodians, for example, they think that I think like a third world person and then I like, oh, I need you to, you know, feed me and take care of me, mommy white person. No, I'm not like that at all. I I want nothing to do with, I don't need anybody to like hand me anything. I want to work for my stuff. And that's right. uh, so when they see like us, you know, go ahead. Well, well, and by the way, based on what I just said, it kind of reveals something about me. But I will, I will say this: is that I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm actually quite honestly moving away from associating myself with political parties because I can criticize both parties, and I can, in a sense, compliment. Well, more or less, it, it's even what, where I can compliment isn't even. Um, and and as such, um, I would say that I would belong to the fact and evidence party because. My statements, my beliefs, my understandings, my expressions come from what I found by way of facts and evidence. So when I say that that socialism has never worked, I've looked it up. I've seen the numbers. I follow the economics. I've studied it academically. It's never worked. That's not me saying it through a lens of a, politi- a particular political bent. It is me looking at the facts and the evidence and the history of it and saying it's never worked. So I'm not coming from a political viewpoint. If I can look at, if I can say, if you just told me that these that these um, white liberals, and it's important to say the race because that's the majority of who they are, are thinking that you just that you're incapable of making your own decisions or you need help. That's not based on the facts. I don't have to come from a political perspective to say that. If I can have a white person, and I ha- it happens all the time, sit down and with confidence tell me about black history, that, by the way, is completely erroneous, yet they're completely confident in telling me, a black person, that this is black history. All I can do is laugh, and I don't have to come at that from a political perspective to see how ludicrous it is, especially, for example, since you know, you've already said that I'm old. I've lived through much of it personally, yet they tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I was there. I was there in Boston in, what was it, 1971-72, to see the buses drive by with all their windows smashed up because the, um, of the forced integration into the Boston public school system. I was there watching those buses. But McCall doesn't know anything because he's black. That's their mindset, guys. Exactly. That's their mindset. Exactly. So who's on your team? I mean, we, we and I, like I love it. I love that you said you know uh, the political position because I'm I'm 
I'm there with you, man. I'm there with you. And um, I'm, I'm right in between. I just want to know what's going on. And I can, I just base my things on that. I, and I think it's just like, it's the whole two party system, in my personal opinion, that it's kind of, mm, it's really not really destructive, but it, it's making things very complicated because it, not everything is black and white as the world puts that to be. That's the intersectionalist would have you believe. <laughs> um, I think that the expression or society or po- politics as expressed through any political system is merely the mouthpiece of the thought that's going on at the ground level on the individual basis. Because if you look at the Democratic Party of now, while it's, while it's historically been racist, uh, it historically wasn't sexist. And yes, you can argue that yes, women couldn't vote, blah, 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 but the, but the but the vernacular now is so racist and it's so sexist and it's so classist in a way that it wasn't historically. And what, in, in, in the same way that the sort of the right-wing Republican party for a long time had been taken over by evangelical Christians for a period of time, is now the same that the postmodernists and the socialists have actually taken over the Democratic party. And as long as we don't know that, we are powerless to defend against it. But because they knew that they were not going to get a stronghold in the Republican Party, they decided to fight hard to literally take over the Democratic Party. And of course, it's not it's not going well because Bernie Sanders was an indication that they were not going to be able to come out of the gate as socialists and get away with it. Uh, so Bernie decided, well, I mean, Bernie, Bernie's a whole other topic, but Bernie objectively is one of the biggest political sellouts I've ever gotten to observe. Uh, not only does he sell out, but he sells out instantaneously. There's not even a lag time between him failing and then selling out. And, and that's, that's a, a topic maybe for another time. But, but when you get to it, they don't have any values. They don't have any operating principles underneath the rhetoric. And that's why the rhetoric is able to change so much and so drastically. Because there is no fundamental core as to what they believe. They're just told this. So they believe this today. And then when they're told that something else, they believe that the next day. Nobody says, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We believe this yesterday. Why do we why do believe why do we believe this new thing now? I mean, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, uh, her um, Basically, there's a person in the State Department that is in charge of creating, at least the creating the direction of U.S. foreign policy. And her person openly espoused the removal of white men from the State Department. And this was revealed in one of the documents that um, came out of WikiLeaks. And nobody, I mean, and, and what was interesting was it was published in either Foreign Policy or Foreign Affairs magazine. This was not one of those secret things behind closed doors. This was an article that was actually published when she called for the removal of white men from the State Department and the foreign policy apparatus as a whole. There wasn't a peep made out of this. This is why research is so important. I didn't read that in some other article. I found it myself. Yep. And this is why we suggest you guys do your research. And start reading big, yeah, yeah, do your research. Start reading big books. Uh, (laughs) Neil Ferguson, you know, look up Neil Ferguson and read his work. His work is amazing. 
Um, yeah. So we went and we went all over the place in such an interesting conversation. I hope you guys who's listening that, you know, uh, reach out to McCall. Uh, he's going to be in, he's, I'm going to link him in down below and you guys can uh, engage with us in the comic section. Um, and he is going to be a frequent guest um, when it comes to like politics and stuff like that and um, intersectionality because this, I know this is like the far out wisdom and, and people are like, you know, well, what's the, what's the difference? Um, you have to know that the postmodernists um, and intersectionalists and stuff like that, they're pretty far out. <laughs> it's like the, their ideas are not getting challenged. And um, what do you, but what do you mean by far out? As far as a pretty much far out people, it to me is like the unorthodox people, and uh-huh. so the the postmodernists and stuff. There, Michelle Foucault and stuff like that was was not your typical philosophers. They were their ideas. We're starting to see their ideas into play, correct? And so mm-hmm. they knew what they were doing. And so to me, it's more like a respect, but in a bad way. Does that make sense? Like we're enemies, but it's like I see. Hmm, you motherfuckers! I shouldn't cuss, but right. like, oh, you smart. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, it's notoriety, and and I and I complimented the fact that what they did was incredibly smart and incredibly sophisticated. You know, earlier in our conversation just now, yeah. I acknowledged how good they are. I acknowledge how smart they are, but I also acknowledge that that at the at the end of the day, none of it will hold up because reality doesn't support any of it. Mm-hmm. And just so like- that's yeah. Yeah. Go on, sorry. So like with with every building, you guys have to know. Just you guys ever play Jenga, for example? There's a foundation, and right now the postmodernists and stuff like that, they're pulling it at Western mm-hmm. culture, and so they're pulling mm-hmm. it as much as they can. And there's so much that they can do where it will fall apart. And what do you have when you have chaos? Chaos has always come. Uh, chaos was always present when communism took over, just like what happened Correct. in Cambodia. Correct. Chaos. Yeah, chaos is a necessary prerequisite for the arrival of um, of communism. Absolutely, exactly. And 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 look at this path as well. Is that currently we know that every every time people get a chance, uh, is they're bashing men. Now they're 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 premising it on white men specifically, but they're bashing men. But if you'll notice that since the future is female, and that it's all about equality. Notice how the biggest evil right now is, um, is, is, is men. But tracking behind that is the vilification of religion. And you'll notice that, of course, religion is not a favored thing in any communist state. Why? Because it denotes a hierarchy within a house that is separate from the state. And for communism to survive successfully... It cannot have anyone adhere to any other principles other than the state. So how do you ultimately have people give their complete allegiance to the state? Is that you vilify men and you separate fathers from their families. Fathers separated from their families will also inherently separate people from religion because the the archetype, if you will, for religion in a household was the father. In fact, the entire premise of the patriarchy is is why they hate the patriarchy this way. Because ultimately, what was the hierarchy that was given religiously? That was God, man, wife, children. And operationally, that is unbreakable because it's both intuitive and functionally effective. Right? So it's intuitive in terms of how we're built, that hierarchy, 
And it's also effective in terms of how it keeps a family together and, and how it keeps it up and how it makes that family a functioning economic unit. But the problem is every single household has a head of that household. But if you begin to remove men, you already break the religion and father, if you will, head of household connection, which leaves a vacuum in the family made up of women and children. So what then happens next is the state comes in and says, I'll be the daddy and I'll provide for you. And the women say, no problem. Now, this started in the 60s under Johnson's Great Society Plan, where black men were systematically removed from their houses, not because the police came and dragged them away, but because the mothers were told that they'll get X amount of dollars for every child they have that they're not married to the father. So women began to make their living simply by having children. And if a black man was living in the house, that black, they would lose those benefits. Whatever you encourage, you get more of. Yeah. Oh my God. This entire interesting conversation that we totally need to get into. Um, if you're yeah, there, because it, because it also answers your question about Chicago. Exactly. So we're going to have a conversation about that if you guys are interested. So um, that's going to be another time. So I'm getting hungry and I need my nap. <laughs> I'm just hungry. So it was so awesome to have you. So um, any last words before we, you know, cut the cord? Wow. I just want to say, yeah, I was excited. I'm, I'm very grateful that you invited me to have this conversation. I think it was fun and I hope people learn something. I know we went all over the place and forgive me for not staying on a single, on a single line, but to me, but to me, it's a giant line that, that literally reaches around the world. But I really do encourage people to to get out and, and, and do the research, find out history, learn about economics. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is that if you don't know anything about economics, it's not an accident. If you're an individual that knows nothing about economics, you have arrived at an ignorance of economics by design. And I think that that clue should be taken very seriously, because if you don't understand economics, you are now completely open and completely susceptible to accepting on their face socialist and communist ideology because you don't have any countervailing awareness that will say, hey, wait a minute, but that doesn't work. If the state just pays people for not working, what does that create? It creates nothing. If people are not making stuff, and Elon Musk said this the other day, if people are not making stuff, we won't have anything. Yeah, exactly. So as obvious as that is, people don't know that. Exactly. And, and it's really simple. It's really common sense. But I, even I know that and I'm not really good at economics and I really suck at it. And I, the thing I was really lucky is that I had American government. I have I have awesome you know professors and teachers that did take the time and educate me on that. So, guys, do your research. And, uh, you know, it's 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 simple. And you know, ec economics 101. All right. Our whole Western society was based on, you know, capitalism, stuff like that. And um, there was there's good and bad. Of course, you know, we, we, we both understand it and you guys understand it. But um, research, guys, research and remember to to break out of your echo chambers. OK. And as always, guys, stay far out. Bye. Bye.